I'd just like to begin with an apology, really. I meant to, when the children were still in and when we were starting the service, to um, acknowledge that today is Mothering Sunday and um, to, to pray for, not necessarily for mothers, because I always find that's a very specific group. And I've learned the lesson over the years that actually it can be a really, really hard day for many people. It's not necessarily a day of celebration. So instead, I was going to encourage us as a church family to bring to mind a female role model, um, whether it be a, um, a, a parent, a child, a sibling, a um, grandparent, um, a, a celebrity. It could be anyone. Um, and we were just going to have a moment of prayer to celebrate those people. But um, I almost thought I could probably get away with it if I don't mention this, but that's not right. I, I, um, I neglected to do that. So apologies if anybody came in and thought, oh, I can't believe it, he's not even mentioned Mother's Day. Um, but um, it's not biblical. It is biblical to celebrate role models. It is biblical to celebrate positive influences in our lives. Um, Mother's Day itself isn't in the Bible, um, but I would urge you today, um, if, you're, if you... Um, if you have young people with you, or if you don't, I would urge you to just take a moment to pray and give thanks for a, a, a female role model who has had a positive influence on your life. That's a really positive thing to do on this day. A few weeks ago, in fact, two weeks ago, um, as part of the Grace series, you may remember that I spoke about the bitter root. And I actually brought a root with me, and um, I think there was still a bit of mud on the carpet, so it got hoovered up this week from where it was fresh out the garden. And I spoke about how a root, if left, um, if not identified, um, if it's allowed to grow and develop, can actually cause great destruction. And I haven't got a clicker with me, so... Um, are we all right just to drive from the back? Great, thank you. Um, so what I want to do today is, um, obviously, roots aren't all bad. If we go, go around digging up roots and ripping them out of the ground, then there's going to be no vegetation, there's going to be no rainforest, and pretty much the world will come to an end. Roots are important. And there's, um, there's many places around the UK and around the world in general where, actually, in order to prevent um, corrosion and erosion... Trees are planted because the roots go down into the soil or the sand or whatever it happens to be, and they give stability. So roots are important. And I say that today because we're only a few weeks away from Easter, believe it or not. And at Easter, we go through that spiritual and emotional roller coaster. One minute we're, we're praising and celebrating as we go, go and look back at Palm Sunday and the, the joyful welcome, the heroic entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. We remember the crowds and the cloaks and the palm leaves and the donkey. The celebration is brilliant. But personally, I've always found it difficult to get really excited about Palm Sunday because... We know what happened just a few days later. We know that, that if we allow ourselves to, to get carried away with the euphoria of this image of Jesus entering Jerusalem triumphantly, then we're going to be crushed. Just a few days later, as we remember 
the same crowds that welcomed him and shouted Hosanna were then condemning him and shouting crucify him, crucify him. And then of course on Easter Sunday we, we're lifted again with the good news which, which I can get into, I can celebrate that. And that's a good thing, and I can't wait for Easter Sunday this year when we're going to have baptisms and celebrate new life in Jesus. It's going to be a really, really good time. But what we're going to do um, today and next week, as we, as we run into Easter, I was, I was thinking, how can, we, how can we prevent ourselves from having that, um, that sort of a, a spiritual roller coaster? I've seen it many times in, in churches where... Um, uh, I've experienced it myself, and I've seen, seen it in, in other people, other ministers I've spoken to have identified a similar thing in churches where people often really struggle going into to Easter. It can be a time of, of spiritual unease. It's almost as if we're a little bit unsure how to cope with the ups and downs of the Easter story. And so what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is just look at Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're going to try and put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the Israelites. Throughout the Old Testament, we're going to start looking at a passage in Genesis today. We're going to work through, and we're going to look at some of the, some of the prophecies that were made about Jesus, some of the promises. And we're going to imagine how it must have felt being alive in those days, being, having this promise made by a God that we, we desperately try to keep faith in, but the reality is that generations come and generations go and the promise remains unfulfilled. Disaster and tragedy can strike and the God who assures us that he'll be with us doesn't appear to be with us. Throughout the Old Testament, we can look back now because we look back through the lens of Jesus. We look back through the, the lens of, of everything that Jesus did, the fulfillment of the promise. And we look back at the Old Testament and it's very easy to be very judgmental of some of the peoples that we read about in those times. But you see, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to keep a promise sometimes. But sometimes it's really difficult to trust in a promise, to believe that what has been promised is going to happen. I can promise you, I'll lend you a chainsaw. And you might think, okay, have you got a chainsaw? Nope. Okay, um, well, I suppose you could go and get one, but you've promised it. Um, and I'll say, just, I'm not saying when, but I'll lend it to you. Okay. And days and weeks go by and months go by and you've got something in your garden you think it's becoming a problem now. The, the, the roots and the brightness, it needs to be cut down. Can I borrow it? Yeah, I'll, I'll lend you the chainsaw. It will happen, it will happen, it will happen. And it doesn't happen. Eventually you say, Tom, look, I'm going to go and get my own chainsaw. I'm, I'm fed up with waiting. It's frustrating, isn't it, when someone promises you something and you don't know when. We like to have a time scale. We like to know when things are going to happen. Because then we can plan, we can organise our lives around them. But in the Old Testament, we read about the Israelites going from, from situation to situation, from challenge to challenge, and that we see them struggling to trust. 
They had a promise from God. Promises from God are often quite difficult to interpret, difficult to fully understand unless you actually live in the context and the culture and the time in which the promise was given. We're going to look at some passages today where we can look back and see that although the Israelites were looking around saying, come on then, when, where, who, what? We can look back now and see that God is a faithful God. And hopefully by the time we get to Palm Sunday, we will have a renewed appreciation of the faithful God that we serve. So at any point in our lives, we can look back and we can, we can see so often, we can see the journey we've been on. We've got, um, if we can go on to the next, the next slide, um, you'll be familiar with the, the Footprints poem. If you're not, then, then Google it later. It's, it's a very famous Christian poem and it talks about a journey and the journey of life looking back at your life and seeing the different events and seeing two sets of footprints in the sand. And there's the, the, the narrator is having this conversation with God and says, Lord, I, I can't help but notice that in the most difficult times of my life, there's only one set of footprints. Why did you abandon me at the most difficult times? And God says, that's not when I abandoned you, that's when I carried you. T.S. Eliot wrote a, a wonderful poem um, which talks about returning to the place where we begin and knowing it again for the first time. When we've, when we've been away and we, we've experienced life and then we come back to our roots and we see them again through fresh eyes. So, Jesus is talked about in the Old Testament. We don't often... We don't often talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is in the New Testament. Well, yeah, that's where he physically came. But make no mistake, Jesus is talked about a lot. He is promised and he is present in the Old Testament. To begin with, right back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, and God has come, and they, he said, why did you hide? And they said, because we were naked. And they, he says, how did you know? And then the confession comes out. Adam says, she made me do it. And she said, the serpent made me do it. And God says this to the serpent. He says, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now at that point, to talk about offspring, well, they were creations. Adam and Eve weren't God's offspring. They were, they were creation. They'd been created. They hadn't been born. And as time went on, the serpent, Satan, actually wasn't, there was no enmity between man and serpent in the Old Testament. They, there was a knowledge of good and evil, but it wasn't until Jesus came that there was one who would crush the head, who set out to destroy the grip that Satan has on the world. 
Don't get me wrong, the Israelites were aware of evil. They were aware of the importance of following God. But the awareness that we have of of Satan, a lot of that comes from studying Jesus when he was tempted in the desert, when he cast out demons. The offspring that is spoken, spoken about in Genesis is the first foretelling of the coming of Christ. But it's not the only one. We read in the Psalms these songs that were shared and passed down from generation to generation in Psalm 2. Verse 4, we read, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So one was promised who who would be able to say, I am your son, you are my father. That's how Jesus identified himself. To be installed as as the, the, the ruler of nations, the king of kings. Again, there is this, this foretelling of Jesus. But the Israelites read these scriptures and, and they desperately wanted They wanted to to trust in them, but it's hard when generations and generations and centuries go by and you don't see the fulfilment. It's hard. We can move on to the next slide. This is, this is God speaking to Moses in the Exodus. Exodus 25. God's been giving instructions as to how to build the tabernacle. And there's, there's all these different instructions, the materials and the measurements... Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Now, of course, in the sanctuary, um, and in fact, I found out just before the service that Nikki's doing this with the the kids today. Um, She actually built a tabernacle. It looks fantastic. If you can get upstairs after the service and see it, I'd recommend doing it. It's brilliant. You can get right in there. But it, it, it represents the tabernacle that is spoken about here. Now, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and that was where the the Spirit of God was said to dwell, with the Ark of the Covenant. But I will dwell among them. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't dwelling among the people. It It was a specific place. There were boundaries, there were limitations. 
for one to come who was going to dwell among the people of God, then that hadn't yet happened. Again, it would have been, it would have been hard to read those, those words and think, well, come on then, dwell amongst us. Where are you? We have a God now who dwells amongst us. We celebrate every week the things that he does in our midst, the answers to prayer, these things that happen. Because God is no longer simply confined to a small area in the center of a temple. He is everywhere in our hearts and around us, with us and through us. God dwells among us. Again, in 1 Kings, as for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Jesus came, he lived amongst the Israelites. He did not abandon them, even to the cross he stuck with them. He stuck with his people. He never abandoned. Never did he forsake us, never did he leave us. And that is still true today. In Ezekiel, as a vision as a prophecy is given. God says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Forever. This is a promise of eternity. It wasn't talking about the temple because the temple was destroyed. This is talking about a greater spiritually significant eternity. The presence of Jesus. And so there's a consistent promise of the dwelling that Jesus, that God would send one who would dwell with us. Now just imagine, for generations and generations, word has been passed down through your forefathers, through through your your family, friends, the, the, the tribe. Thousands and thousands of people who hold true to this this promise, they trust in it. But it's not happened. It's not happened and it's not happened and it's not happened. And there's been been invasion, there's been disease, there's been all sorts of of times when when people have wailed that God's abandoned us. There's been times when people have turned away. There have been times when there's been, been other cultures, other gods that have been introduced when perhaps a harvest has failed and suddenly someone's been trading with, with a neighbouring tribe who have a god of the harvest. Well, all, all we've got to do is, is go, and, uh, go and worship their sun god and next year it will be okay. Or they've got a fertility god. She sounds fun. You know, our god's so restrictive. The rest of the world go and get up to all these things and do all this stuff. And our god has promised and promised and promised and... Where is he? It'd be like the cruelty it must be these days when a child walks around a supermarket in August and sees the first Christmas decorations being sold, the first adverts for Christmas, and thinks, oh, fantastic, only just finishing school holidays and and Christmas is coming. And then those three months from, from September through to December, 
the agony, the agony of waiting. When you're a kid, it must be an eternity. Waiting and waiting and waiting. It's not, it's it's not going to happen. No, I don't, I don't want to know. It's, 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 I know it's harvest now. I know the shops are full of Christmas stuff, but I don't believe them. Oh, it's Halloween now. All my mates are out doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Because Jesus is coming. Well, why can't he hurry up? I'm bored of waiting. We don't like waiting. Suddenly we can begin to understand Palm Sunday a bit more. Palm Sunday when Jesus, who's been healing, Jesus, who's been performing miracles, Jesus, who has, who has words got out, he is the son of God. Jesus, who has stood up to the religious leaders of the day, Jesus, who has encouraged people to, to explore who he is, to change their lives, to listen to his teaching. Jesus, who's reached out to people, who's travelled around, hasn't stayed in a temple, hasn't gone around judging people, but has instead gone around showing kindness and love, sharing with people, making himself available to people. This Jesus suddenly is making more and more sense in the context of, of the scriptures, of the promises that maybe that promise is going to be fulfilled. Maybe God is there after all. Maybe this is all going to come true. Maybe this is, this is it. Jesus. And the excitement grows and it builds. And there's more and more certainty that, that, that this, is, this is him. This is it. And so when he enters Jerusalem and more scriptures are fulfilled, more promises come, come to, be, to be fulfilled, there's Jesus coming in through the gates and we raise the palm leaves and we lay down the cloaks and we celebrate and we thank God. This amazing moment. I don't know about you, but suddenly that promise of dwelling, one being sent to dwell amongst the people, suddenly I can understand the excitement of Palm Sunday a little bit more. And then, of course, the Old Testament is full of a promise of peace. Now, different culture, different times. The temple itself would have not have been a peaceful place. The temple itself would have been a place that absolutely stank. Because it, on a daily basis, there was huge bloodshed in the temple. There would have been gutters to allow the blood to flow from the altar. I've never and I hope I never will be, to the slaughter um, of the ritualistic slaughter of an animal. But I would imagine that there is splatter. I'd imagine that when you go through an artery of a bull that's got a pretty big heart pumping blood round at pretty high pressure, I'd imagine that these curtains might need to go to the dry cleaners on a fairly regular basis. The temple wouldn't have been a pretty place to be it would have been awful through 21st century eyes. Go outside the temple and borders would have been dangerous places. There would have been constant wars. This was a time when disputes were settled often in a way that we wouldn't recognise. Justice had a very different meaning. Life was hard. And so... Imagine the hope that came when you read a passage like Isaiah 11, which says, A shoot will come up 
from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse, the, the father of David, of course. David, the, the line of David, eventually culminated with Jesus being born. That was the, the, the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse. That's a prophecy about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the beet. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful image. What's being described there is this Eden-like scene, this promise that one will be sent who will bring peace. What was Jesus called? The Prince of Peace. He certainly had the Spirit of God on him. We see when he was baptised, the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. We see throughout his ministry that peace that he personifies. He stays calm. Even when he's rebuking someone, he does it with grace. And with love. I love that image at the end of that passage that talks about the infant playing near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy. So suddenly this, this viper, this, 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 this snake that back in Genesis was spoken about, suddenly it bears absolutely no danger. A child can play in its presence because of the one that God sent. The promise of Jesus. There is Jesus being promised again. But he wasn't necessarily sent in the way that was expected. There's another prophecy about Jesus in in Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So God promises a king. And of course, understandably, people, people know God can just create He doesn't need to send a baby. He doesn't need to to go through the the, the normal requirements that that we are bound by as, as mere mortals. God is God. He can create out of nothing. A king, a leader. One who's going to bring peace by crushing enemies. 
One is going to bring peace by wiping out anyone who threatens that peace. Perhaps it's not surprising then that Jesus wasn't accepted by his own people. He wasn't what they were anticipating. They were supposed to be a king. A king commands armies. A king has palaces. A king has a presence. They weren't expecting the child. They weren't expecting the mere carpenter. They were expecting something far more fitting of their time, of their culture, than what they received. But maybe they shouldn't have been quite so surprised. Because the promise of peace, the promise of peace is not simply from that one passage in Isaiah. The promise of sending one who will bring with him the peace of God. Again, it's a root that, that holds together the narrative of the Old Testament. Time and time again, this peace is promised. In Ezekiel, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with my people. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Well, we live in those days. We live in those days. The sanctuary of God is here right now, in us, around us. When we go home and we pray and we share, we are in the sanctuary of God. When we go to our workplace, we're in the sanctuary of God. When we go to the, the front line in Ukraine with bullets flying around and the smell of death in the air, it's the sanctuary of God. Because he sent the one that he promised. Because our God does not break promises. And that peace, we might look around the world and say, that's all very well, Tom, but the peace bit hasn't quite worked, has it? Well, yes, it has. It has for those who choose to follow Jesus. Those who choose to follow the one who was sent, the one who was promised. Yes, that peace is a reality. Or it should be. But there are ones who don't yet know him. There are ones who are still in that, that tug of war that God is desperately trying to, to use us to pull back to him, to reclaim his children, to pull them back to his kingdom. There are ones who, who don't recognise Jesus, who don't recognise the Son or the Father, but they might recognise us. And that's where we come into this, this eternal narrative, this wonderful story. There is a promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. And so when we go out into the world and we meet people who are caught in that tug of war, who haven't yet come to know their own personal saviour, we're not on our own. We're in the eternal sanctuary of God. It might not look like it all the time, it might not feel like it all the time, but make no mistake, we are. We are. 
Because the temple, which was front and centre of the Jewish faith, of the Old Testament, so much revolved around the temple. Well, the role of the temple changed completely with Jesus. You see, in Psalm 23, um, you'll be very familiar with this psalm, it closes with these lines, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, that's a lovely image, isn't it? And it makes perfect sense through 21st century eyes, through post-Christ eyes. But actually, the idea of dwelling in the house of, of, of the Lord would have been that would have suggested the temple. The Old Testament idea of heaven was a very confused idea. There was, no, um, there was no guidance as to what heaven was. There are some Psalms, Psalm 88 being one of them, which have a very bleak, desolate idea of what happens after death. Heaven is where God dwells. And to say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever... That's a bold statement for an Old Testament reader. That's a bold statement because it's saying, I would have been cleansed, I would have been purified, I would have been brought to a state where I can, I can enter the presence of God. Now that only happened once a year, and even then only happened to the high priest in Old Testament times. He was the only one who, who could go through the, these cleansing rituals and be made clean enough and pure enough to enter into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. And even then, only for a very short space of time. And so to say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, was a challenge. That's a confusing, a profound statement. The temple was so sacred. It was so special. The idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever would have taken a lot of time for the Israelites to work through. It was counter everything they'd been taught until Jesus came. In John chapter 2, Jesus is challenged. When, when he's challenged about the destruction of the temple, he answers, them, he answers the Pharisees when they're challenging him, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. You see, the temple changed with Jesus. The, the, the place of the dwelling of God, it changed completely. It changed with Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul develops this. He says, he says, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the significance of Jesus, because Jesus was so important, he was the son of God, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so because of Jesus, because of that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, because of that condemnation um, on, on, on the, the, the night of, of Maundy Thursday leading into the morning of Good Friday, because of the beatings and the floggings and the mocking and the carrying of the cross and the crown of thorns and the nails and the death, because of all that, and because of the resurrection and the empty tomb and the 500 plus people who bore witness to the risen Christ. Everything changed. Everything changed. Suddenly, the temple is not somewhere we have to go as a place of pilgrimage to go and pray in one specific place because our God is is limited to the one specific place. Suddenly, the whole world is the house of God. God dwells in our very hearts, in our very spirit. God is in us. And so we started in Genesis and we're going to end in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, when John is describing the the, the dream, the vision that he sees of the, the new heaven, the new earth, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus was a temple. He was destroyed, and three days later, he rose again. Why? Because he promised he would. And our God doesn't break promises. And so, as we, as we sort of gear up for this, this Easter period, as we look back and remind ourselves of some of the prophecies of Jesus that were made in the Old Testament, some of the, the promises that came directly from, from the, the voice of God, let's just try and remember why we get excited about these times why it is that we should be inspired and driven and why we should celebrate these times. Even Good Friday, which is so often a, a pretty sombre sort of day, actually, I've always thought, well, that's a, that's a, there's a call for celebration there. I celebrate the fact that I'm so loved by Jesus that he went through everything for me. It's unbelievable. It's perhaps the, the, the biggest, the most worthy of celebration of all days in a Christian calendar. And so this, as we gear up for this Easter time, I just want us to be reminded of the, the, and encouraged by what Jesus has done for us and by the faithfulness of God. We can trust in our God. And because of that, what I want us to take away from today is a reminder. Jesus was, is, and always will be. Jesus existed before Genesis. The book, not the band. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and promises of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he will fulfill the New Testament promises one day. He will return. He will come back. He is with us right now. Make absolutely no mistake. 
Yes, there are awful things happening in the world. Yes, there are challenges and tribulations that we have to face on a daily or weekly basis. Yes, life doesn't suddenly become a bed of roses because we say, I want to follow Jesus. But make no mistake, our God is with us. Our God has never left us. Our God trusts us to do the work that he's called us to do. And he's with us every single step of the way. And he always has been. And he always will be. Let's pray. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Father God, we thank you that we are your people. Not because we deserve it, but because you love us. We cannot earn any right to call ourselves people of God. But because of your love, because of your grace, because of your presence, you've given us an open invitation to follow you. And Lord, as we approach this, this Easter time, we pray that you will bring to our minds this renewed sense of joy at the ever-present Spirit of God. As we look back through the Old Testament Scriptures, Father, we, we give thanks for those people. We give thanks for the faith of the Israelites. It's so easy to look back and, and point out all the, the, their mistakes the times that they lost faith. But Father, they went through some hard, hard times, but they still trusted in you and you never left them. You never gave up on them because you keep your promises. And Father, we thank you that, that we can celebrate Easter. We can celebrate Jesus. We can celebrate all that he did for us. We can celebrate the future. We can celebrate what's, what's to come. Lord, this is such good news. This is such good news. So Father, help us to just remember that as we go out into the world. Whether we find ourselves in difficult times, whether we find ourselves struggling with, with, with relationships or with work, or maybe even with faith, Father, whatever our battles are, join us on the front line, we pray. Be with us. Father, show yourself to us and, and just assure us that you're walking with us. When we look for those, those footprints in the sand, Father, help us to remember that, that you are never, ever not there with us. And that sometimes you even reach out and pick us up and carry us. But Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that as we look back through history, we know, we know that you are the author of creation, that you are Lord of lords and King of kings, and you sent your son into this world to change everything and to point his people onto a path that would bring them back to you. 
So Lord, help us to tread that path faithfully and diligently. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. And help us to keep your word and your spirit at the forefront of our very existence. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we'll close by singing about the God of yesterday's the God who is here today.
We do thank God for his promises, for his presence. We thank him for our yesterdays, for our today and for our tomorrow. We thank you, the past and the present, no matter what words we use to say it, we thank our God. And so as we go and please do join us for for coffee afterwards, but as we go out into the world this week, just remember, God is with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that we can look back at prophecies that were made so many hundreds of years before Jesus and we see the fulfillment. We see those promises, those prophecies being honoured. And Lord, we know because of Jesus that as we leave this place, we go in the presence of you. You are always with us. You are always in our corner. You are always in front of us, behind us, to either side, above and below, surrounding us with your love. And so, Lord, may we leave this place with, the, with that knowledge ringing in our ears and the confidence that comes through knowing you in every conversation that we find ourselves having this week. Lord, bless us, be with us, fill us with your spirit and send us out to do your work and build your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Please.